Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 325, Dr. J.C. Beale, The Contradictory Christ, Part 2. In this second part of my conversation with Dr. Beale about his new book, we first discuss why he doesn't accept a relative identity solution to this problem of Jesus' humanity and divinity. We then go into more detail about exactly what he's proposing and what are some of the philosophical and logical ideas behind his proposal. Finally, deep into the conversation, maybe in about the last third, I try my hand at a philosophical objection to this theory, which leads to some interesting conversation. Again, the book is called The Contradictory Christ, and I've got the Amazon link to it on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, along with some what I hope are helpful notes and some other relevant links. Dr. Beale, welcome back to the Trinities Podcast. Thanks very much, Dale. It's great to be back. In our conversation this week, we're going to get a little more technical, but I want to encourage the listener and the potential reader that your work, while being extremely sophisticated, is also extremely clear and rewards close study. So anything we talk about in this episode, the Curious Inquirer can learn more about in your new book, The Contradictory Christ, and or in some of your other publications. So, Dr. Beale, last time we were going through the various attempts to show how Chalcedonian Christology is not, as may appear at first glance, contradictory, but is in fact wholly consistent. There is one strategy, perhaps it is one only a philosopher can love, but some will want to know why you disagree with this, and this is called relative identity theory, which has been most thoroughly developed by the leading Christian philosopher Peter Van Inwagen in a paper or two in the 1990s. On such a theory, Christ would be God-identical to that which is impeccable, and Christ would be human-identical to that which is peccable. So, why not get on board with relative identity theory? Well, setting out my reply without a blackboard can get tricky fast. So, <laughs> so let me just hit the big picture. I do say a bit more about it in the book. And as a side note, I think for excellent and clear discussion of recent relative identity views, I would strongly recommend the work of Dr. Joseph Jedwab at Kutztown University. Mm-hmm. So using terminology from Dr. Michael Ray, we can distinguish pure and impure versions of relative identity strategies. The former, the pure, point to various definitions and the ensuing entailment behavior of relative identity predicates or relations without wondering about the metaphysics of those relations. The latter, the impure, first work out a metaphysical story about target relations and then hope that the entailment behavior follows naturally. In the end, there are a few problems that confront such approaches, at least in comparison with the simple contradictory approach that I advocate in my book. One problem is that there's a proliferation of identity relations in the theory. And in this way, the theory is more complicated than one wherein the target Christological claims involve just one identity relation or one predication relation. 
A second problem is that the exact consequences of such relative identity claims remain entirely unclear, at least as far as such views have been developed. In Dr. Vanenwagen's work, there's not really a full logic, so to speak, of the relative identity claims. His sole aim was just to show that there's a way to formalize the Christological claims in such a way that they have a simple model, which, in the context, is supposed to mean that the claims are as consistent as the full and true description of the given model itself. Dr. Vanenwagen was under no pretense whatsoever that he was doing more than that. And as another side note, Dr. Ray's impure relative identity work done jointly with Dr. Jeffrey Brower is not on the incarnation mm -hmm. and doesn't look like it would have a natural or simple application there. So I'll set that aside. Now, a final problem is that the relative identity approaches are one and all focused on finding an equivocation in the core Christological claims the claims that Christ is fully human and that Christ is fully divine and that there's exactly one person thereby named by the name Christ. Finding equivocation is fine if the flat-footed reading of the claims is deeply problematic. But why think that those claims are deeply problematic? The answer given by relative identity theorists is that the flat-footed reading entails contradictions. But again, my own view, as advanced in the book, is to ask whether, in the radical event of the Incarnation, we don't in fact have a genuine contradiction. It seems to me that the relative identity accounts have failed to answer that question. And one final side note. See, without a blackboard, everything gets pushed into side notes. <laughs> I should flag that Dr. Vanenwagen, in his target work, he first did it for the Trinity, which we're not talking about today. He first did it for the Trinity and then did the same project for the Incarnation. I should flag that Dr. Vanenwagen in that work doesn't appear to be dogmatically set against the sort of glut-theoretic approach that I've advocated in my book. But his given project is one that is driven by the mainstream account of logic. That's what he's up to there. But I just wanted to flag that he looks to be open to a lot of different accounts of logic that, that could potentially solve the problems. He just doesn't go there. Yeah. And a glut theoretic approach is a logic on which there can be statements or propositions which are both true and false. Correct. I know it's difficult for a logician to work with out of board. Uh, it's like... <laughs> tying both arms behind your back. We appreciate your audio attempts. Uh, <laughs> I also don't mind napkins, but they're not going to help uh, <laughs> either. Right. We don't even have a restaurant napkin to work with. It's very sad. Right. Um, <laughs> Dr. Beale, if someone takes an introduction to logic class at a university, they will be taught, or at least they will likely infer from what they're taught, that every claim, every proposition is either true or false, and that no claim can be both true and false, or neither true nor false. In other words, for any claim, there are not four options, true, false, both, or neither, but rather only two options, only true or only false. Why do people think this, and why do you and a lot of other present-day logicians disagree? Well, first, I should probably do a little bit of terminology setting, and then I'll return to the question of standard versus non-standard theories of logic after explaining what logic, more explicitly logical consequence is, mm -hmm. and what happens in a logic class at a typical university. And let me warn both you 
and the listeners that to say anything useful and accurate here without a blackboard, without napkins that people can see is going to require a longer answer than I'd normally prefer. Your listeners might know that a formal logic class is not a critical thinking class, and that's important. A critical thinking class gives strategies for, well, thinking critically, usually involving a march through so-called informal fallacies, like sticking to the subject, being univocal rather than equivocal, being charitable in interpretation, etc. A march through some elementary probability theory, a tiny glimpse into the standard theory of logical consequence, and other things. A formal logic class is a class on the standard theory of logical consequence. What is logical consequence? It's an entailment relation that governs so-called logical vocabulary. So let's take both of those pieces in reverse order. What's logical vocabulary and what are entailment relations? And then we'll get back to logical consequence. Logical vocabulary on a very traditional picture still prevalent today is the sparse set of topic neutral or universal vocabulary that's common to the languages of all true theories. The true theory of arithmetic has special vocabulary tied to its subject matter, namely numerals for the natural numbers, an addition operator, and an identity predicate. The true theory of frogs contains vocabulary tied to its subject matter, namely the predicate frog and whatever fancy biological predicates the true theory of frogs has. The true theory of tractors has its own special vocabulary, as does the true theory of divine beings. The languages of these precise theories are not at all the same. However, they share a small and foundational common core that's the same in all of them namely the logical vocabulary. This core set of universal or topic-neutral vocabulary is small indeed. Among the pieces of logical vocabulary are things like logical conjunction, logical disjunction, logical negation, which is logic's falsity operator, and the so-called material conditional defined out of logical disjunction and logical negation. And in addition, there are standard quantifiers, but I'll ignore these as best we can just for simplicity. This vocabulary is common to all true theories, no matter how different the theory-specific vocabulary of the given theories may be. And it's in that sense that, as I said, logical vocabulary is universal and topic-neutral. Now, I said that logical consequence is a so-called entailment relation that governs the logical vocabulary. Your listeners now have a basic sense of what is meant by logical vocabulary. But what about entailment relations? What are those? Well, these are relations that are often said to be necessarily truth-preserving relations between sentences or over-sentences. They are said to be necessarily truth-preserving in the sense that they are absence of counterexample relations. What does that mean? The idea is actually very familiar. Take two arbitrary sentences, A and B. Let us say that there's a counterexample to the pair, AB, in that order, just when there's some relevant possibility in which A is true and B is untrue. Now, each entailment relation is defined over some space or set or universe of possibilities. 
Given such a set of possibilities, we say that sentence A entails sentence B, if and only if there's no counterexample in the target space. That is, there's no possibility recognized by the relation in which sentence A is true and sentence B is untrue. That's pretty much the long and short of entailment relations. You can define any entailment relation you want by specifying a space of possibilities and for each sentence A in the language, specifying the truth and falsity conditions for the sentence, where this involves saying what it takes for the sentence to be true at a possibility, what it takes for the sentence to be false at a possibility. Okay, now let's return to the question of logical consequence. Logical consequence is a special entailment relation that's tied to logical vocabulary. What do I mean? I mean that the given relation looks only at logical vocabulary when it searches for counterexamples. In other words, logical consequence, properly speaking, gives truth and falsity conditions only for sentences that contain logical vocabulary, conjunction, negation, disjunction, material, conditional, quantifiers. Anything that doesn't contain one of those pieces of logical vocabulary gets treated as logically neutral. It's possible according to logic. In this way, the space of logical possibilities is the widest space of possibilities. It's very, very, very wide indeed. Accordingly, the possibilities recognized by any true theory are one and all logical possibilities, although the converse obviously fails. After all, the true theory of physics involves a small space of logical possibilities that one and all obey the laws of physics even though there are infinitely many logical possibilities in which those laws fail. And so some logical possibilities are not theoretical possibilities recognized by the true theory of physics. All right, that's enough terminology to address your main question. As you rightly say, a typical logic class at a typical university teaches the mainstream account of logical consequence, which is called classical logic. Side note, this is so-called in the sense of standard or paradigm or mainstream. What we call classical logic is definitely not the account of logic during the classical period, at least not the classical Greek period. Mm -hmm. But put that aside. End side note. Unfortunately, yeah. when this account, classical logic, is taught to students, it's simply taught as if God or even the church or even stepping much lower – the maximum leader of logic decreed that this account of logical consequence is in fact a true account. In fact, nothing is further from the truth. Classical logic, as understood today, was a tremendous advance on Aristotelian and even medieval work. It was largely defined by Russell, Whitehead, Frege, and others, all mathematicians who were talented philosophically too. Mm -hmm. But what students don't get taught in their first class is that classical logic was never intended as an account of logical consequence itself. Rather, classical logic as standardly understood was in fact intended as an account of logical vocabulary in our true mathematical theories, an account of the entailment behavior of the basic logical vocabulary in our true mathematics. But that's a very different and very limited project from giving an account of logical consequence simpliciter. The universal entailment relation governing the topic neutral vocabulary in all of our true theories, not just true mathematical theories, but true theological, biological, and other theories that have vastly more robust vocabulary than even our richest mathematical theories. 
And this brings us finally to why I reject that the classical logic account is the right account. Classical logic as we know it is just the account of the entailment behavior, logical vocabulary, and all true mathematical theories. But mathematics recognizes fewer logical possibilities than even a moment's reflection reveals. After all, the classical logic account rightly recognizes two fundamental semantic categories for sentences, namely truth, falsity. But as your question long ago at this point nicely noted, a moment's reflection reveals that from those two fundamental possibilities for a sentence, there are at least four general possibilities that, without some restriction, a sentence can occupy. Namely, you've got truth, a sentence can be just true. You've got falsity, a sentence can be just false. Both, a sentence can be both true and false. Neither, a sentence can be neither true nor false. In logical studies and philosophy, we call the both category the glutty category, a glut of truth and falsity or truth value glut, terminology that originally arose from uh, the philosopher Kit Fine. And the neither category we call the gappy category, a gap between truth and falsity or truth value gap. These are just obvious combinatorial possibilities that fall out once we have the two fundamental categories. Since logical possibility is the widest space of possibility, logical consequence itself recognizes all four of these possibilities. All four are logical possibilities, or so it seems, unless, of course, we have good reason to reject some of them. Do we? I say no. The classical logic account, which models a space of possibilities recognized by true mathematics, rejects the glutty and gappy possibilities. But that's perfectly fine. That just means that mathematical reality doesn't exhibit either glutty or gappy phenomena, so understood. But as any serious thinker knows, reality is far greater than merely mathematical reality. And unless there's some special reason to reject the logical possibility of gluts or gaps, reject the both and neither option, we should adopt a so-called subclassical account of logical consequence one that allows for such possibilities as logical possibilities. Now, obviously, having the logical possibility of a glut or a gap doesn't in any fashion whatsoever demand that the true theory of reality is itself glutty or gappy. It just means that it's logically possible. Whether there are, in fact, glutty or gappy phenomena is left to the hard work of truth-directed theories, and this includes Christology. Without a blackboard, it's difficult to go through logically valid and invalid patterns or argument forms if you want. But the key point is that on a better motivated subclassical account of logical consequence, there are logical possibilities in which sentences are both true and false, they're called gluts, and logical possibilities in which sentences are neither true nor false, they're called gaps. In addition to all of the standard possibilities recognized in the restricted classical logic case, where sentences must be either true, false, and never both. So I hope that answers the question, and I hope that your readers didn't find it too laborious. Or your <laughs> listeners, I'm sorry. Some will have to work through it, but you know, sometimes being serious about an issue requires working through it, and uh, it's a good reason to get the book, honestly. Because as I said, it's it's not always easy, but it's it's almost always clear. When the Trinity's podcast returns, 
What kind of non-theological examples motivate some present-day philosophers to believe that there can be true contradictions? Dr. Beale, in the fields of theology and apologetics, many are not aware that some recent work in logic has been friendly to there being contradictory statements, which, even though they are false, are also true. Can you give any sort of relatively uncontroversial, non-theological example which could make a person friendlier to the idea of true contradictions? Yes, I think that the easiest case comes from weird paradoxical sentences, um, the easiest of which is the liar paradox. In a different work, I call this a spandrel of the truth predicate. Spandrels are originally these architectural things that are inevitable if you build arches. And Gould and Lewontin, in work in evolutionary biology, extended this to the idea of often unintended but inevitable side effects of selecting something or introducing it into an environment. Mm-hmm. And so I call the liar paradox a spandrel of truth because when you bring a truth predicate for a language into the language itself, these things are inevitable. And that won't be obvious to your listeners, but it's uncontroversial that they're inevitable. Mm-hmm. So let's just look at one quickly. Um, A simple version of the liar paradox involves a sentence that says of itself only that it's false. Example, the sentence that I'm asserting right now is false. This is a phenomenon in which two contrary properties, i.e. properties that can be jointly had by something only via contradiction, namely the properties of truth and falsity, are together in one subject, namely the sentence I just asserted. After all, the sentence is true, if and only if the sentence is false. So if the sentence is either true or false, then it's both. Hmm. If you claim that the given liar sentence is gappy, neither true nor false, which is certainly a logical possibility on the right view of logical consequence, you avoid this particular contradiction, but you do so, one might think, unnaturally. After all, a sentence that says of itself nothing more nor less than I'm false just looks contradictory. So that's the most natural category for it. Moreover, there are so-called revenge problems lurking. Consider another liar sentence that says either I'm false or I'm gappy. If you say that that sentence is gappy, then the sentence is true, since in that case it would have at least one true disjunct, the one that says of itself that it's gappy. And so avoiding contradictory phenomena in this area is exceedingly difficult. And for what it's worth, it also strikes me as theoretically impossible to avoid gluts in the area Hmm. in a natural and simple way. But your listeners, if they're interested in that, can look at other work I've done. My book, The Formal Theories of Truth and Spandrels of Truth, if they're interested in that stuff. Help me out a little bit. 
On the face of it, the gap solution seems less costly to say that it's neither true nor false, the sentence that this sentence is false. But you're saying there's another sentence that either this sentence is false or it's gappy. Talk us through that a little bit. Like, how does that ruin my strategy? Okay. Well, um, let me just say that when you say it seems less costly, it seems less costly because it's more familiar, which ultimately may not be relevant to the to the full cost. Mm. I don't mean to be saying I know better than you do what you're what you're thinking, but I do think that that that's probably what you mean by uh, too costly. We do have lots of uh, valid English sentences that are neither true nor false, like "ouch!" exclamation point. Oh, true, true. What time is it? Good, Mm -hmm. good, 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 good. So yeah, in that sense, it's very familiar that you'd have. Although they're not assertions. Right, exactly. But look, I think you're right. I think that there are lots of sentences. The most natural account of them is as gaps. And literature on vague predicates is like this. For your listeners, I'm not going to go through all this unless you wish, but um, imagine, um, or don't imagine, just think of a sentence of the following form. Dale Tuggy is an adult at time N. So let time N be right now. As we're speaking, it's clearly true. Now, let time N be the moment that Dr. Tuggy was born. Okay, well, it's clearly false there, right? Mm-hmm. But if classical logic is the right account of logical consequence, governing all true theories, including the truth about predicates of being an adult and so on, you'll quickly see that there has to be a unique N, no matter how small you make it, a millisecond, and go through each millisecond of Dale Tuggy's uh, life to now. There has to be a unique N at which went from it being false that Dale Tuggy's an adult to it being true that Dale Tuggy's an adult. We're talking about a millisecond. So that is just so difficult to accept as the right account of being an adult and so on Mm -hmm. that many have said, right, there's sort of a gap in the middle where you have some of these claims for some N, Dale Tuggy is an adult, that's going to be gappy. It's neither true nor false. Mm. Um, you still have a question of how you pop over that gap. But but okay, so I agree with you that there are lots of accounts of gappy sentences that um, have nothing to do with theology or even these paradoxical phenomena, just mm-hmm. ordinary vague predicates. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if any of your listeners doubts the existence of, of these sort of gappy or vague predicates, not to be, so I don't want to be tendentious, they can ask themselves, why do we have courts? Well, we have courts because the language isn't precise enough. So you have to stipulate what it is to be an adult. You have to stipulate what it, you know, so you bring a new right. terminology. Yeah, you just turned 18 or 21 or maybe 16. Exactly, yeah. exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. Let me just say this. If somebody thought that there was a precise moment <laughs> at which one became an adult, I would think they probably didn't understand the concept of being an adult. Right. I agree with you. Though, if they subscribe to the standard account of lo- logical consequence, they don't have much of an option. Mm-hmm. But that could take us way away. Okay, so you ask, you want to say of a simple liar sentence, I'm false, or the sentence that I'm now asserting is false. You want to say that that's neither true nor false. You want to say it's gappy. Okay, so that's the category you put it in. So we've got these three categories. You can be true, you can be false, you can be gappy. Well, 
Now consider the sentence, either I'm false or I'm gappy. I'm, I'm in one of those two categories. Mm -hmm. Okay. Suppose the sentence true, then it can't be false because we don't have that category. Mm -hmm. And it can't be gappy because then it would be neither true nor false. Okay. So we should reject that it's true. Okay. Well, that leaves two options. It's false or it's gappy. But the sentence in question is a disjunction. It's true if and only if at least one of the disjuncts is true. So no matter which basket you put this sentence, one of the disjuncts is going to be true. If you put it in the false basket, it then has to go in the true. If you put it in the gappy basket, then what it said is true. Namely, I'm either false or I'm gappy. That's true because, in fact, it's gappy. So it looks like the gappy approach on its own won't resolve the problem. Mm. It looks like you're still running into contradictions. By the way, there are so many different avenues to talk about on this, but that's what I meant by the revenge problem for mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. particular sentence. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't have any brilliant answer to it at first glance either. Yeah. Let me also say, setting the liar stuff aside and whether the gappy approach works, let's just talk about if you were to go, whether for open theism reasons or not, you were to say, look, the right account of logical consequence is indeed subclassical. So you, we agree there. But you think it's something like what's called K3 or strong cleaning or um, WOOC3. These are all technical names in logic land. Um, mm -hmm. But Basically, you're thinking, well, we acknowledge the poss logical possibility just true, logical possibility just false, and the logical possibility of gaps, neither true nor false. And you give the standard truth and falsity conditions for all the connectives. That and define entailment in the logical consequence in the standard entailment way. That gives you what's called strong claning. Well, remember, as philosophers, and I think as theologians, but since we're not at the moment talking theology, as philosophers, you don't just want to give the account that works. You want to give the most natural account. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like a really unnatural account to say that logic, this universal relation that governs this universal topic-neutral vocabulary, limited as it is, allows for the possibility of gaps. But no, no, it doesn't allow for the possibility of gluts, even though the two are mirror images of one another. So it looks like a sort of awkward, imbalanced account of logical consequence to just go gappy, or by the way, just go glutty. So a famous glut theorist, Graham Priest, goes just the opposite direction and has the same awkwardness, in my opinion. He thinks that the right account of logical consequence is one where we recognize logical possibility of just true and logical possibility of just false and logical possibility of both true and false, but logic would never entertain gaps. Mm. And this just strikes me as so asymmetric and unnatural. So I think if you're willing to entertain gaps in your account of logical consequence, you should allow gluts as well, even if you think that no true theory is going to require those possibilities. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Beale discusses some objections to his proposal.
Okay, so suppose that's all right, that we look at things like the sentence, the sentence is false, and it looks like overall just the best answer is going to be that that's both true and false. And then nothing about logic and logical consequence rightly understood rules this out. Um, then at least as far as logic is concerned, it looks like why not consider this with the case of Christ who might be, for instance, uh, peccable and impeccable at the same sense at the same time. Dr. Beale, you have for a couple of years now presented your perspective on contradictory Christology to a pretty good number of serious and well-educated philosophers and analytic theologians. Uh, you're very you graciously thank all of these in the intro to the book. What on the whole has been the response? And what, in your view, are a couple of the most interesting and important objections that they've come up with to your account? Well, there are a lot of objections covered in the book, but let me briefly present two objections that came up recently after the book was published. Mm -hmm. I'll refrain from using the names of those who raised these objections because I don't have permission to and I don't know whether they would want to. But if they're among your listeners, let me just say thank you for their engagement once again. One recent objection begins with the premise that Christ is the center of Christian theology and the Christian life in general. I accept that premise. The objection is that the contradictory account that I advance makes the very heart of Christian theology, indeed the very heart of the Christian theory of reality, contradictory. And this is bad, even if there are true contradictions in reality somewhere else. My reply is that the objection is insufficiently detailed. What I want to know, and I should emphasize, I genuinely want to know, is the sense of badness at issue here. To be sure, the charge of contradiction is often taken to be the charge of badness. And in many cases, for example, our best mathematics, perhaps our best biological theories, etc., a contradiction is genuinely bad in the sense that they're ruled out as theoretically impossible. But if we're taking seriously the possibility that Christ is as he appears to be in the simple Chalcedon Christology, then we need to know what the alleged badness amounts to. And pending that, the objection stands as insufficiently detailed. Another recent objection is related to the last one, and perhaps of special interest to your apologetics listeners. This is the objection that a contradictory account of Christ ruins any hope of successful apologetics. Hmm. Why? Well, as the objection was laid out to me, the typical scenario is as follows. A non-Christian thinker objects that the Christian theory should be rejected because it's contradictory. Perhaps, per the first objection, contradictory at its core doctrines of Christ. The apologist now replies, well, yes, you're right that the account is contradictory, but you're wrong that we should reject the theory, for the theory is true despite having contradictions in it. The apologist might even continue. If all you want is a consistent theory, then we can lop off parts of the true and complete theory to give you the consistent but partial story. Side note, the apologist would be correct on that score, as I explained, though not in this context, somewhere in the book. End side note. But now the objector replies, I don't want a proper fragment of the theory if the full theory is contradictory. You've basically ended debate by conceding the contradiction. My reply, first off, I don't think that apologists should be trying to convince anyone of the truth. 
That's up to Christ himself. The job is to defend the coherence of the true theory. If the true theory is contradictory, then the job is to explain how the theory is coherent despite the contradiction. That's in part what my book aims to do, at least in part. But I should also emphasize that, at least on my view, apologists have no obligation whatsoever to defend the coherence of the true theory in the face of all objections. The only objections that should be taken seriously are objections that have been made precise and that have been offered by one who genuinely wants to get at the truth. And if that person really wants to get at the truth, then they're not going to walk away at the mere mention of contradictions being true of Christ, so long as you explain the, the account. Now, there are other objections. Many of them turn on technical logical issues, but I'll skip those because mm -hmm. your listeners have listened to a large chunk of logical uh, details. It's certainly true that a lot of people assume, you know, that all contradictions are false and also that the only way that you're going to reject something like divine human Christ would be to point out how contradictory it is. Although I think in your book, you show that there are a lot of different kinds of objections that don't hinge on whether an account is contradictory, you know, such as being arbitrary and poorly motivated and, and things like that, that can be very powerful objections. Yeah, there is a widespread assumption that we have to show that it's not contradictory. Is there a deeper problem that just Christians generally assume that to confess is to confess is true? And then here we'd have to say that something is true, but also, by the way, it's false. I don't know, that seems to me like it might go over as a clunker just on a congregational level. Let's say a paragraph of things, and by the way, some of those things are false in addition to being true. Is this an objection that you've already got? Do you feel the sting of it at all? It's not an objection that I've received formulated as you've just formulated it, and I don't think it's equivalent to anything I've received. Um, it's similar to one that Dr. James Anderson raises in his book, mm -hmm. where he entertains the possibility. I mean, there was no worked out theory at the time, but he entertains the possibility of responding to the apparent contradiction of Christ by accepting that it's truly contradictory, that, you know, accepting a glut theoretic account of it. And he responds, uh, one of the problems he says is that you wind up confessing something false. And that Christians have the responsibility of confessing the truth and only the truth. So that's similar to what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. My response, and please follow up if I'm not responding uh, exactly to your formulation, but my response is that I agree that you should confess the truth and only the truth. But to do that, sometimes you have to confess something that's also false. If the truth about Christ is contradictory, then in order to confess that truth, you're also going to have to confess something that's false. Just because the nature of reality is such that to give the full account is to say something true, which is also false. Now, this is going to be unfamiliar to many of your listeners. So let me point something out here. Don't think of falsity as taking something away. This is often a sort of habit. 
when you think of a sentence being false, you think of taking it away. And indeed, in many true theories, the simplest, something like the true theory of arithmetic, it turns out that the way the logical vocabulary behaves in those theories winds up entailing that something is false according to the theory, if and only if it's not even in the theory. But that's only in special cases where you've ruled out the possibility of gluts. And I have a lot of papers on this, but they're technical, unfortunately. I wish I'd, I had something better. But the simple point is very easy to see. Suppose that you have a sentence that's both true and false. Well, then, suppose the sentence is A, because it's true, and you're trying to give the full true story about whatever the target phenomenon is, you put A in the theory, right? But A is also false. So what do you do? Well, you don't spend the rest of your time putting A in and taking it out. No, you put in the truth that A is false. One easy way to do that is to put in the negation of A. Namely, it's false that A. You put that in the theory too. So the fact that you have a glut doesn't take something away from what is true. It actually adds to the truths in the theory. Now, for large swaths of reality, as far as I can see, we don't have a lot of gluts in our theories. But again, the incarnation by everyone's lights is something, you know, extraordinary in a lot of ways. And one way in which it's extraordinary is being logical, though that's probably one of the less, lesser important ways. So just to be clear, when you have a glut and you say the sentence is true and false, you're not putting the sentence in the theory and then taking it back out. You're augmenting the full description of the reality by adding not only it's true that A, but also it's false that A. You're adding both of those claims into the theory. So the answer is that you agree that we should only affirm truth. It's just so happens that some of them are also false. And if people are used to avoiding falsehood, that's because they're assuming that false always is just only false. But hey, when you've got false and true, well, then because it's true or because reality demands both, both the truth and the falsity have to be put into the account. That's exactly right. I think a lot of people get tripped up because they think, well, if we're saying it's false, well, I mean, what are we doing? Are we, is it in the theory or isn't it? And that's why I say you, you want to think about sentences both true and false. You're not taking something away. You're actually adding more to the full description of the phenomenon. So back to your simple objection about, you know, having to confess something false. Well, we all agree. You should never confess something that's just false. You should confess the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But if the truth is contradictory, some of what you confess will also be false. But that's a broader story. It's not a sort of shorter story. And I should note that if the logical consistency of the theory of Christ, the description of Christ, if the logical consistency is somehow more important than the complete description as far as we can get to it, well then, yeah, just lop off the one or the other side of the glut. Only tell part of the story. 
Personally, I don't see why that would be driving in a confessional context more than completeness. I can imagine contexts in which it would not be practically useful to confess both sides of the contradiction. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. You should always do what's best in the context to say as much of the truth as you can. But if we're talking about trying to give the whole truth of the incarnation, then, yeah, the whole truth happens to involve falsehoods. But again, these are so intimately tied and explained by the uniqueness of the incarnation, divine nature, human nature, one person. Go back to the simple appearance. It appears to be contradictory. And we know many, many ways of trying to get around the contradiction to save consistency. But if you have a good view of logical consequence, maybe this is one of the rare and maybe the only really important case where the logical possibility of gluts shows up. And that's an important clarification, I think, to someone who's first approaching your work on this. It's not that you think all contradictions are true. It's not that you think there's lots of contradictory things, but you're saying, anyway, logic leaves the door open. And so if we're really driven in this direction, maybe that's just what the full truth of the matter requires. And, you know, why not the case of Christ, basically? If there's really strong reason to think he's fully human, really strong reason to think he's fully divine, and that those both being true of one and the same person would require a true contradiction. I mean, it is an underexplored strategy for sure. And it is one that's had the door open to it by the kind of logic that we've been talking about. Yeah, that's correct. And I do think that, again, as you said in our last uh, meeting, the book, The Contradictory Christ, begins with uh, the Chalcedon axioms that Christ is fully divine and Christ is fully human. And given that starting point, there are lots of ways of getting around the contradiction, but each of them looks like it's highly complicated. And compared with the account that says this really looks like a contradiction. The reason it looks that way is because it is. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Exactly. Of course, as you know, I, I very much want to know if I'm wrong, but exactly. It just seems to me exactly as you said, looks like a duck, sounds like a duck, and all the other accounts of it that say that it's not a duck yeah, maybe it's uh, not a cat us, in a duck costume. Make us squirm and twist our head and, and stand on one foot and everything else. Hey, except that it's a duck. Mm -hmm. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Beal and I discuss my own objection to a contradictory Christ. Dr. Beale, I had the privilege earlier this year of being a part of a recent online seminar on your book that was organized by a graduate student from the University of Birmingham named Michael DeVito. Uh, it was really very interesting. 
lots of good discussions there. And one of our discussions, I came up with my own objection after, it was after a couple of days and mulling over these things. And my objection was that traditional Christian opposition to true contradictions in theology isn't so much due to dogmatism and logic, you know, just assuming that all claims must be only true or only false, as it is due to the metaphysical conviction that there can't be contradictory beings. And we see that explicitly taught in the widely read ancient philosopher Aristotle, And you might think that this is a self-evident or just obviously true principle, that there can't be any being of any sort which is and isn't a certain way at a certain time. So, for instance, we would all reject as only false that I have a brother who is six feet tall and who also at the same time and in the same way is not six feet tall. But if there can't be contradictory beings, then there can't be true contradictions. So how would you reply to that sort of objection? Yes, that was a great seminar and made all the greater from your engagement. So thank you again for being there. In the objection you just voiced, you make two important claims. The first concerns Aristotle. I'll get to the second in a moment. I suppose that I disagree with your historical analysis, although let me say this loudly and clearly. I am not an historian and certainly don't put a lot of weight on my reading of things there. Mm-hmm. But I will say this, that Aristotle didn't appear to take the question of contradictory beings to be off the table. Why do I say that? The answer is that he notoriously argued against the possibility, and in fact, notoriously argued for a variety of principles of non-contradiction. I use the word notoriously here because Aristotle's arguments, at least by the lights of logicians who have examined them, are infamously weak. Of course, one explanation for the weakness might be what you're getting at. Namely, that Aristotle just took the point to be obvious or self-evident in a way that makes any argument on the topic to be weak. I don't know, truly. But I do wonder what Aristotle would have said with the vastly clearer resources that are available today. Even advances on mere quantification change the game in ways that Aristotle never saw. But again, I defer to historians and stand waiting for the history on the Aristotle. But of course, the second claim you make is independent of that. The second claim you make is that at least Christian thinkers, if not most thinkers generally, reject not that there are glutty logical possibilities, that is, logical possibilities in which sentences are true and false. They reject that there are glutty metaphysical possibilities, Possibilities recognized by the true metaphysical theory in which sentences are true and false. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Okay. If you're right, I think that this is as interesting as it is exciting. And it's very interesting. It's interesting because if true, it would put Christian thinkers at the forefront of logical theory. Maybe not on the details, maybe not as experts, but it would show them to largely escape the unfounded dogmas that are rampant in a lot of philosophy and theology. But what's exciting is that if there are good reasons for thinking that the true metaphysics rules out the logical possibility, the logical possibility of gluts, that is, the true metaphysical theory rules out the logical possibility of gluts as a metaphysical impossibility. So 
happy to say, yeah, it's a logical possibility. It's it's seen by logic, but in the true metaphysics, it's just ignored in the way that such things are ignored in the true mathematics. If that's the case, that that's where Christian thinkers have been, then I'd very much want to know what those reasons are for so ruling it out. I certainly see it as a position, no question. But my suspicion, though, is that the reasons aren't strong. I certainly agree that, as I say in the book, our default theorizing is governed by a quest for complete and consistent and simple true theories. And this goes for metaphysics as much as it goes for mathematics, theology, and even language itself. But when a phenomenon persists in its strong appearance of contradiction, as Christ does on the standard account according to which he is fully divine and fully human, then we have to take seriously the logical possibility of an inconsistent account as metaphysically possible, theologically possible, and whatever metaphysics is entailed by that theological possibility. Exactly when to accept an inconsistent account is no easier than when to reject a consistent one. We do the best we can, always pursuing the truth while undoubtedly making missteps along the way. If I've made a misstep in accepting a contradictory account of Christ, I sure would like to know it. But as yet, I don't see the misstep. I didn't mean to suggest that widely in Christian tradition, there was a a widespread acceptance of the distinction between logical possibility and metaphysical possibility, but only that this was not a metaphysical possibility. You know, they might have just assumed that's the same as logical possibility, so. Right. But um, go back to my brother example. Yep. If that's really self-evident that there can't be a guy like that, because just generally there can't be contradictory concrete things, that would explain why people just dismiss it. And they don't say, well, I don't know, we need to go farther into our true theory of brothers or of human beings. Like, It kind of seems like it doesn't matter if someone says, hey, I think there's a, a space alien from Alpha Centauri that exists and doesn't exist at the same time and in the same sense. It seems to me that people just dismiss it regardless of subject matter, almost, except just the subject matter is, I guess, concrete beings, maybe if not any kind of beings, maybe sentences could have contradictory qualities, I don't know, but it would explain the rarity. It seems that everybody thinks that if if you do have contradictory beings in reality, you don't want a whole bunch of them, (laughs) because, well, we just seem to go around thinking that these are not real possibilities, or in some sense, live possibilities. In the seminar, you kind of made the point that, gee, when somebody says something self-evident, what are you supposed to say to that? You know, like, have we just said it's the kind of thing that can't be argued about? I don't think so. Yeah, I remember you correcting me, I, I and I accept that um, there's a sense of self-evident that is just a sort of report on where this proposition sits in my current belief system or epistemic framework or what have you. So I I completely agree that there can be a different notion and that one could argue from something that's self-evident even in that way. I guess, though, if being self-evident in that way is sort of locking it in unless everything collapses so that it's not really being entertained in a sort of, you know, live option way, then 
Yeah, I don't know how debate proceeds, but I, I don't mean to say the person is closed-minded or anything. I, I completely, in the seminar, I completely took your point and stand corrected on that. But, you know, you said something else that's that's worth a comment here. Go oh, right, your brother. My imaginary brother. <laughs> okay, okay. I was going to ask, do you have a, a brother? Because th- this would be well worth writing about if you got a brother who's both. I actually brother. don't, no. Only sisters. Okay. But let's take your brother case. It is true that people roll that out. Somebody says, Dr. Tuggy's brother is six foot tall. And I say, well, shouldn't we also think about whether it's false that he's six foot tall? People would just think that I'm either confused, playing around, or I'm not being serious in our attempt to get at the truth Mm -hmm. of your brother's height. Mm -hmm. Um, Agreed. But why would they react that way? I think you're right that they're not reacting that way because they have a firm position on the right account of logical consequence. Yeah. So, and it's not because they've examined 1,054 brothers and they've all been consistent in their height. Exactly. Yeah. You have made me see that sometimes I overstate that when I say this is a commitment, you know, just a dogma about the, the mainstream view of logic and all that. You're right. Many people, including philosophers and theologians, simply don't have a well, you know, thought out theory of logical consequence. Mm-hmm. And partly that's just the way education works. As you said earlier, take a logic class, you're going to get the standard account. You're not going to even get a glimpse at anything else. You're not going to be told what the standard account was aiming to be or anything else. You're just going to get that. You do your logic, you figure it out. And then you go on and do the real work in theology or metaphysics or philosophy of mind or epistemology and so on. And you never think twice. And that's for people who think a lot. But I'm wrong to say that all of them are just coming from a firm dogma against the logical possibility of contradictions. And out of everyone I've talked to, you've you've made me see that. Where they're coming from is exactly as you just said a a minute ago. When they just completely roll out uh, your brother being six feet tall and it being false that your brother's six feet tall, they're rolling that out not because they have a well-worked-out theory of logic. They might even say, well, that's logically impossible. They may or may not have had a standard course in logic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. They're going to rule that out. But why? As you pointed out, induction, right? Well, partly induction, but partly Occam's razor, right? I mean... I don't think it is induction, really. Is it Occam? I think it's Occam, actually. Mm -hmm. Well, why would we also say that? Like, what's driving that? Now, take the liar, right? Why would you ever think that a sentence could be both true and false? You look at, for example, take the sentence, Dale has a brother. Take the sentence, his brother is six feet tall. Take the sentence, you know, Dale is six feet tall. Take the sentence, um... Dale runs the Trinity's podcast. All these sentences, go through them all your entire life. Why think that a sentence could be true and false, even if you acknowledge a logical possibility? You just never or have never thought about the full space of logical possibility. Mm-hmm. Why would you do it? Well, you wouldn't. You have to sort of encounter certain things. Oh, that's striking. The fact that something's striking doesn't mean that we don't have the standard resources to deal with it. But don't think that the standard resources you've had all your life 
are going to cover all of reality. I mean, there are going to be some surprises. And I think when you meet something like the liar paradox, because we're talking about why would you ever think even a sentence could be true and false, you're like, okay, now that we see we have sentences that say of themselves only that they're false, okay, I see it. Or that say either I'm false or gappy or whatever. Okay, I see it. Notice that doesn't force you into that position. You may try to give a consistent one to rule out that possibility, come what may. And many do. But the reason you rule out that your brothers, and I do too, I just mm -hmm. rule out all these logical possibilities in which your brother is six feet tall and not, because there's no reason to even for a moment pause over it. But unlike the case of the liar sentence, take the case of Christ. If you accept, for whatever reason, you accept that Christ is both fully divine and fully human. You can't say, well, these are gappy. This is the starting point. And then you see the contradiction and, you know, you're like, okay, this is different. And obviously there's no reason to say that Jesus was six feet tall and not, at least from anything I've said in the book. But <laughs> I think... Mm -hmm that you are correct, that in some places, both in the book and in other contexts, I've overstated things by saying that people are rejecting the contradictory account of Christ because they are dogmatic in their theory of logic. You are absolutely right that I'm wrong about that. Some do, but perhaps many simply don't have a worked out theory of logic. And they're simply rejecting this by, you know, Occam-like strategies. Well, why do we need to say that? And again, I go back to, well, you're staring at what looks to be an obvious contradiction, which is why all this work, compositional, qua of every variety, um, change of meanings of the predicates, all this stuff has gone on because you're staring at something that looks like a contradiction. And the whole point of the book is to voice um, my view that the right response is to simply accept that it is indeed contradictory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe what I'm getting at is that this case of introducing contradictory being into reality worries me because it seems like it's like some other cases in historical philosophy. So for instance, you can find very brilliant philosophers who have these arguments that, you know, there couldn't be two different things. There's only one thing, or there's no such thing as causation, or there's no such thing as selves, or there's only one self and things like this. And I think it's part of our God-given common sense that we know that we exist and that we're selves and we know there are other selves. And you know, right there, we know there's two different things in reality. Because <laughs> um, there's, there's me and there's you, and we're not identical. And cause and effect. I mean, look, we just know there's cause and effect. Like, I know there's all these fancy arguments to, that will depend on certain philosophical assumptions. But it seems to me that a layperson can just, you know, listen to Spinoza or some 20th century logical positivist who doesn't believe in causation, and, or even a, a Buddhist philosopher who th doesn't think that there are any selves, even though there are mental events, there aren't any owners of them in a sense. I think they can just say, no, it's just obvious to me that these things are true. And I know you got this highfalutin argument. I don't really know what the wrong premise is, but I mean, 
I know that conclusion isn't true, so I'm going to stick with common sense here, and maybe I will or won't be able to poke at the unjustified or false premise or challenge the validity of the argument. Like, it seems to me like it's reasonable in a lot of these cases for people to kind of just side with common sense, I guess. And so I'm worried that somebody could say, just epistemically, this admitting a contradictory concrete being, it just, it just can't be right. Like, there, there can't be things like this. And if you say why, I don't know. Like, it just seems obvious. Doesn't everybody think it's obvious? And then, I don't know, there might need to be an argument to undermine that that it's uh, a principle of common sense or what Plantinga calls uh, properly basic belief, something known but not on the basis of other things. Not all plausible claims have the same amount of warrant or justification behind them. And I think that's what makes the kind of move I'm describing. I've called it before philosophical judo. Uh, Supposedly in judo, you don't attack. You just kind of use people's movements against them and you get them on the ground the kind of thing I'm describing is a defensive maneuver where you just stand with common sense and let the theoretician come at you, but you're still more justified standing with the falsity of the conclusion than you are accepting that they can prove the truth of the conclusion. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And it may surprise you that we may not be as far apart on that as one might think. I think that these principles of common sense, and I would even extend it to the planting uh, properly basic beliefs and constitute knowledge, that gets tricky partly because of the trickiness of certain contextual features of knowledge and all that. But putting all those things aside, I think that common sense principles that push us against contradictions and so on are extremely important principles that guide our pursuit of truth. And as a matter of fact, I mean, I think that they make up a few very important and foundational methodological rules of thumb. For example, we want to pursue the whole truth. We want to pursue the complete truth of a phenomenon. That is, for any given sentence, P, we want our theory to decide P or not P. It's true that P, it's false that P. We also want to pursue consistent theories. For any given P, we want to put exactly one of it's true that P, it's false that P into the theory. But we also want, and this is I treat this as part of genuine common sense, we also want simple theories. We don't want them to be complicated in ways that don't need to be. We want them to be natural, another principle. Natural in some sense that's very difficult to define. So putting all these methodological rules of thumb, which reflect common sense attitudes, to me, this is what's going on every day when we're trying to figure something out, trying to figure out the truth. Mm-hmm. But as anyone who has tried hard to give a systematic account, a true theory of various things knows or has learned, sometimes those rules of thumb just can't all be accommodated. I mean, if you're right about uh, open theism, the true theory of certain kinds of statements is not going to be one that's going to be complete with respect to every sentence, Mm -hmm. because some of them will be gaps. 
So there, you know, you, you sort of, you're like, well, consistency is more important because there's no obvious reason to think that we're dealing with something inconsistent. So you just go with the gaps in that case. Or as we've seen throughout a lot of the work in Christology that we talked about, as brilliant as the work is, some of it gets extremely complicated in a hurry and sometimes looks very unnatural. Why? Well, they're trying to get both complete and consistent and the consistencies, you know, bucking the simplicity norm or the naturalness norm and so on. So I'm with you and everyone else who says that, hey, look, common sense, we just know that, you know, the right story is this or that. But sometimes when you're depending on the phenomenon that you are trying to give a true theory of, true and complete as possible theory of, sometimes the phenomenon pushes back and makes you give up some of these principles. I mean, imagine if we had just followed the principle that, you know, the rotation of the planets is just as common sense tells us. I don't mean to equivocate on the term common sense there, but let's just say the way experience sort of seems to tell us without further reflection, mm -hmm. then it looks like uh, the sun, everything else going around the earth and blah, blah. No, sometimes, you know, you reflect still following these methodological rules of thumb. But I guess in the end, I don't think I disagree. It's just that the person says, I just know that there can't be any contradictory bit of reality, even if it's God who makes it so, even if it's the incarnation, even if the incarnation, as I confess in some of the doctrines, sure looks contradictory. I just know it can't be contradictory. As Dr. James Anderson says, this to me, I just... I don't really have a lot to say. I understand where they're at, but I, I just think, well, you need to maybe think a little bit harder, maybe think a little bit harder about, you know, your views of logic, even though I absolutely learned from you that that's not always a telling thing. But, you know, think a little bit more. You know, Dr. James Anderson, who was with us at that online seminar you mentioned, I think his work is fantastic. And I actually uh, liked some of your work on that. But, you know, he describes the apparent contradiction vividly. And then he says, but of course, well, he gives some arguments against going for a glut theoretic view. But the arguments are not good, I think. Um, it's very, very hard not to beg the question in this type of thing, you know? Yeah, it is. I completely agree. It would be like arguing with somebody who thinks that monism is true, as you, as you mentioned. Um, it's mm -hmm. hard not to beg the question. I'm not worried about somebody begging the question. What I want to know is, though, are they revealing any reason to give up the actual view? Are they advancing things? Sure. Dr. Beal, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you, Dale. Again, it's a, been a great honor, and I thank you for your engagement with my work. This week's thinking music has been the track The Atmosphere by Little Glass Men 
As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinities podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com groups trinities. The Trinities podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.